This is Keeping Track, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. Welcome back to Keeping Track, everybody. In this episode, we spoke to scientist, distance runner, and trans woman Joanna Harper about her book, Sporting Gender. In it, she covers the history and science of DSD and trans athletes in an interesting read that gives deeper information on the discussions about women's sport you likely have seen in recent news, as well as an inside view of some of the IAAF rulings on DSD and trans athletes. We also hear from 800-meter runner Kate Grace, as well as Alicia, on their perspectives in an event that has seen dominance by women with DSD and how they're both honestly still figuring out how to talk about this complex topic and all its intersections in a way that's fair and supportive for all involved. A big shout out to Saucony for sponsoring our season two production costs. At Saucony, a good day is when we get to run. A great day is when we inspire someone else to run. Run for good, and thanks for keeping track. In this catch-up conversation, we cut in kind of halfway through our casual conversation, so just to catch everybody up, we are talking about Alicia's recent interview on the Tamron Hall Show about her advocacy work for And Mother, which is about supporting um, motherhood and thriving in your career as a mother. Um, And what we are discussing is how she had to advocate for herself with the producer who was asking her to stop breastfeeding um, because they were about to go live on air. And we thought it was a really amazing moment for her to actually put into practice um, a lot of what she's working for and normalizing, you know, being a mom and multitasking. And that's what working mom looks like. Um, So we discussed her experience on the interview, and we will link the interview if you want to go check it out on the Tamron Hall Show website. Yeah, this is all part of it. Yeah. My heart rate. I feel like, yeah, well, actually, in case we do keep that little part, um, we'll link to Alicia's interview because that's something exciting that just happened. It was a great real-life mom moment, normalizing momming and career in the real world. Um, you have to check it out. Your Instagram post, no joke, it made me cry because they're just the sentence around like, this is why women aren't, you're not seeing women at times. You know, this is why women step away because they're like, they're not welcomed when they have to, you know, be a mom at the same time. Not that they're objectively not welcomed, but there's this, hey, put it away, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just too unrealistic for so many people. So I yeah, put your motherhood under the desk. Can you put that in the drawer really quick? It's mm-hmm. like um, you're living it. And especially for me, one of the biggest things I think, you know, everybody that I admire you guys and um, examples that I want to continue to um, push forward for future generations is walking the talk, you know, like I can't say oh, you know, we need to destigmatize motherhood and, you know, allow women opportunities to climb the ladder. And, and then when I'm on a show where we're talking just about that and my expanded advocacy work that I'm going to have someone literally comment, come in my ear and say, can you stop breastfeeding? And 
say, oh, shoot, yes, you're right. Like, oh, uh, and then baby's going, ah, ah, and back on. I'm like, yeah, so we have to keep fighting for moms. No, that was <laughs> doing it right there. It's about walking it and just yeah. literally standing up and sitting, you know, uh, the first words that came out of my mouth were, and that was it. Like, I didn't have to say more than that. I didn't have to explain myself. And that's the thing. I want us to stop explaining our motherhood, mm-hmm. you know, but just absolutely not. Oh yeah. Well done. You yeah. know, well then yes. we can't air breastfeeding. Well, then I can't be on the show. And the thing is, this person thought that this was policy. I'm like, is this your policy? I mean, I didn't say this, but mm-hmm. hindsight is like, if this is your policy is what we're talking about. We need to change all of these policies or policies that don't exist that inhibit a woman who is a mom from um, doing her job and having an opportunity to be in this field and, you know, step away, come back in wherever she feels is is necessary and helpful for her family and to set examples to, you know, people who want to be moms and be in any specific industry and say, Oh, I'm welcome here. I can be here. Um, I saw this person and that person do it. And also like I was saying, it's just the visibility of it. It's like an example for a lot of us was seeing, you know, Kara pregnant, come back postpartum, um, you know, Paula Radcliffe, um, you know, Lashinda Demas, but at that time they didn't show any, of the ugly pieces of mother, of their motherhood. And, you know, it looks like, Oh yeah, you know, we're just kind of like do this and do that. But the pieces in between, I think help, um, you know, companies, sponsors, anybody that you work with to know, all right, there are other elements that go into this. It's not just yeah. this like glory road highlight reel of, um, you know, motherhood. We also need to be able to respect the whole person, including this this aspect of their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's, and that it was so shocking that you were breastfeeding on live TV is kind of ridiculous in 2021. Like of all the things that are on TV now, you're like, why isn't this normal enough to be going on? Like this is multitasking in motherhood. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. seen you guys in work. I obviously haven't experienced it myself, but like that's you got to feed the baby. Like <laughs> that shouldn't keep you out of work. <laughs> that shouldn't keep you out of work. And there would be, there will be people that will say, why didn't you pump and whatever else? I mean, I've been such like positive feedback, but there will be people that's mm-hmm. just the way of the world that will say, mm-hmm. why don't you pump? Why do you this and that? And, you know, and we don't mm-hmm. have to explain our motherhood. Like, that's just it. Like, you know, there are so many things that are not just cut and dry. Um, women exclusively breastfeeding for their own choice of exclusively mm-hmm. breastfeeding. If anybody is pumped knows like this isn't just something that is very easy to do or maintain. A lot of times women's milk dries up when they do that or the other. And then also, if you want to say, you know, why don't you pump? Are you going to come to my house with the chaos that's going on and clean all the pump materials and de-sterilize it and do all that stuff? There's like these added steps to it. And then also with pumping, that's a whole nother block of time yeah. that you have to, you're almost like working triple time. It's already double mm-hmm. time being yourself working and, and motherhood triple time would be, you know, you're nursing the baby. Then you have to set aside time to pump and do all the other stuff that comes with it. Then exactly. do your life, then nurse the baby, then pump. It's just like, why are we pretending like we're not mammals? Like we are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like Ro, you said that before. You're like, I'm such a mammal right now. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so true. But like there's plenty of like it seems like TV though. You know, Instagram. I've seen. Well, uh, I don't know. They call brelfies or whatever, but like people breastfeeding and selfies kind of thing. Oh, and it's like I don't know. I saw this the other day, and I thought, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like people are like celebrating breastfeeding and stuff like that. No problem. But to think that TV is like still like that was like another kind of frontier of maybe it's a little bit 
doesn't move as fast in the TV world as Instagram. That wouldn't shock any of us, right? But TV, maybe you're like, oh, yeah, it's different or it's slower. It's more the old establishment or something. It's kind of, yeah. and I'm, I don't and know, I'm I don't sure watch TV, so I don't know, like, There's probably people who are like, oh, well, I wouldn't want to breastfeed in public or I would feel more comfortable. But like, imagine if there was no stigma, you might be like, your life might just be easier. Like it might just be zero resistance to it. Like imagine if it could be like that next step better, which like Mm -hmm. Alicia, I thought that was like such a big, important part of like trying to do that, normalize it visually, like in all spaces. So like, I don't know, I think it was for the greater good. It was kind of awesome that it turned out that way. Like, I don't know if you had yeah. imagined that, but it was pretty big no, deal. No, but that's, that's what was interesting about your post. It wasn't like, like, oh, I'm going to go in here now and breastfeed in front of TV. It was it was the reality of, of like juggling life and career and kids. And, you know, this idea that bring you on to kind of say, hey, look what women can do. Like, and like, we let's see the bump in action. We never see the bump. And then you're like, oh, I'm running with the bump. But now they're like, you're like, oh, um, but put the boobs away <laughs> like it's like we don't we're not ready to see that yet we, we can yeah. accept your bump but we now let's like leave the breastfeeding thing at home right yeah. Think yeah. Of, and you're like this is still part of the same this is still part of it I think it's yeah it's like the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah no. good good moment to happen <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. Keep the vulnerability um, going there, Miss Montano. <laughs> <laughs> All I can do is be real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Real, real life. Really real. So let's t- let's zoom in a little bit um, and catch everyone up on what this next episode is, because it's kind of a it's kind of a detailed, heavy topic that we have gotten a lot of um, requests to talk about. We want to talk about, but we're all still kind of feeling out all the facts. We're talking to experts. Um, We are talking about the DSD differences of sexual development athletes in sport and trans athletes in sport. And um, especially in the 800 meter event in track and field, we have athletes that are dealing with their bodies being policed with trying to compete, trying to, we're trying to keep the playing field fair. So this is a very nuanced topic and we just wanted to set the stage for that. Um, We talked to Joanna Harper, who is a scientist and a trans woman and a distance runner, very well versed on this topic. And we talked to Kate Grace, too, to get another 800 meter perspective in addition to Alicia's. So, ladies, like what what were your um, concerns, thoughts um, like with this topic? Um, I know we didn't quite have all the answers. We're kind of just opening the discussion up and, and we hope to talk to more points of view in that area. But like, what were your thoughts afterwards? Well, I was hoping Joanna would kind of like, okay, to not hurt anyone, you know, to not bring no harm or, you know, be a kind of social justice advocate and be, you know, well inclusive, you know, do this. And then, you know, to also protect women's sports or whatever the kind of languages around that do this and and how we can marry the two of those things and she's going to wrap it up in a bow and go here you go ladies now there you go go into the world and and uh, you won't hurt anybody and you'll do the right thing and unfortunately it's not that simple and that's what I came away thinking okay there was as this topic's coming up as it's coming up now in the media with um the laws changing in the U.S. and and different things around transgender rights and sports and, and things like that. You know, I'm having like non-sporty friends or non-athlete friends text me, oh, what do you think of this? And what do you think about? And I was like, mm, interesting, <laughs> you know, interesting subject. And 
now I feel like I can engage in those conversations in a way, you know, kind of awake to the situation and not, you know, just be like, oh, yeah, well, I think this and I think that I have. We're more informed, but it's not it's still not an easy thing. That's how I feel about it. That's how I my takeaway from it. Yeah, on the same, same, um, similar aspect. Like I just, I, I wanted there to be, you know, do this, don't do this. This is this language for this. Like, um, and yeah, I think it's good that you said, fortunately, it's not like that. And I don't, um, one thing I, I, I learned is that I don't have to try to be an expert in this area. Um, and I don't think, any of us really have to try. We just need to like learn to listen. I think it's really, really important that we come to subjects that we don't know and we allow ourselves to be students um, by way of other people's experiences. And I don't feel like even in, in um, still in conversation, like I, I talk about, you know, trying to hear from like a, by pulling stories in from third party um, conversations, especially, you know, for this uh, conversation that we had with Joanna, that's more of the reason why I was bringing in third party conversations. But I still feel like when I'm having conversations myself um, with the media and then someone from all different communities that I'm a part of are bringing to me questions, I still don't feel like I have to come up with an answer um, because they're, they, they, I think a lot of people think for me as an 800 meter runner um, that I have this really cut and dry opinion about, you know, how we should do things as a woman, you know, especially in sport, uh, um, you know, there's this cut and dry way to do things. And I just know there isn't. And what I think, and I still don't know what uh, the right, what to do or what the right thing to do for, for sports is, but I still think, we can't forget about humanity when we talk about people and when we try to figure out what a fair thing to do is. I just think the destroying of individuals is like, so never, (laughs) it was Mm -hmm. like, you know, it just is something where it makes me personally err on the side of the athletes who are being removed from the sport, than trying to even think about, um, you know, the women who are saying, well, we would need to protect women's sports and everything like that. I don't mean to use that voice. Cause I, I understand that too. I'm just saying like, you know, it's a very hoorah sort of, uh, movement. And I understand that too. I just don't think it means throwing stones uh, about people's natural way of being. Totally. I feel like that's what makes it, um, like it, it very realistically is a human rights issue fighting with a biological, like mm-hmm. scientific mm-hmm. issue. Um, and they're both present, like not one's not, you know, bigger than the other. So it's really hard to navigate, but for sure the humanity dealing with it in a way that isn't, you know, abusive or, you know, not without dignity for the people that you're talking about and, you know, not making people headlines or reducing them to one inflammatory thing is like something we've seen done the wrong way with some of these athletes and it's heartbreaking. So, so we definitely, um, we definitely feel for that. And we're just trying to open the conversation up. And I think I, the reason I liked starting with Joanna is because she's a scientist. Um, and I feel like science is one of the things that does not get into the headline and it does not even get read when it's in the article. And it's just very overlooked. No one really cares about numbers. No one really, you know, especially nowadays we're seeing it just kind of like 
yeah. put a peg below some of the other information because it doesn't travel as easily. It's not as exciting. Exactly. Everything that she has to say is far beyond, I don't want to use the word Trumps anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's far beyond people asking your opinion on something that is literally um, scientific. You know, there's science behind it. I think that that's more important for people to just kind of understand the numbers behind, you know, different assessments that are made in considering. Mm-hmm. Um, Consider it. Yeah. I'm not saying that's yeah. what's going to win. I'm just saying yes. it's a piece of the puzzle. <laughs> right. And I have to say, I, I have not talked about this topic publicly as, you know, since ever. And, you know, this is the first time I talked about it was um, doing broadcast with NBC. They asked about it. They talked about the ruling um, for um, DSD athletes and I, again, talked about the humanity aspect of it because that's what I know uh, mm-hmm. that I, I care very much about. And then, um, you know, just knowing that we were going to have a full-on conversation, everyone that's listening, I have to just say, I, it makes me extremely nervous because we, I want to say the right things. And, um, and I know that I do not want people to assume that I, because I'm an 800-meter runner, that I want for these athletes to not be there. So sometimes when I feel like I'm a part of this conversation, that's like the expectation. And mm-hmm. I just have to be very clear. That's not how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to learn, you know, I was quite nervous um, talking about this just because I know mm-hmm. I don't have all the right words and um, just know that we are, we had Joanna on for um, education and to be able to have a conversation that um, we felt comfortable having. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think this is the, you know, it's kind of, you know, doing that work and kind of going, okay, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to say things wrong, but hopefully we're still trying to get there. You know, we're still trying to be open-minded enough and to learn from that and to get it right that, you know, that we show the right respect and bring humanity to it. And I think, I don't know it's that like there's no cut and dry and unfortunately that's not there but it's that kind of muddy middle that we're all trying to navigate and I think you know I think it's important to have these conversations and and um educate yourselves as much as we can um mm-hmm. what we can really do right yeah and I and I think eventually we'd love to talk to more um like people involved in this, you know, I don't know if any of the athletes would like to come speak with us or anyone else, you know, I think we're definitely open to talking about it again. Like this isn't like open shut. That's all we're going to say. So um, yeah, look ahead towards that throughout the year. We're going to take our time with it. Um, And yeah, take a listen to Joanna Harper and um, ladies, do you have any shout outs you want to do before we dive into this episode? Cause I have a few that I wanted to point people towards. Um, so one of our buddy podcasts who always helps promote us is strides forward with Shuri Turner. It's mostly about ultra running and she was really nice to give us a shout out last week. So we want to shout out her most recent episode and also her next season, which is going to be about running in a woman's body and all the like physical issues that come with being, um, a female distance runner. I'm looking forward to that. Sounds really interesting. Um, and as far as other cool media things I wanted to shout out, um, ladies, are you reading Alexi Pappas's book? Because blown away over here, can't recommend it enough. And so I'd like to recommend Bravey to everyone listening if you haven't read it already. 
think you covered it, Molly. Um, yes, I am reading, reading Bravey and it's phenomenal. Alexi yes. is so talented. So you guys go out there and get the book Bravey by Alexi Pappas. Um, you won't be disappointed. All right. Thanks for keeping track. Well, welcome back, everyone, to Keeping Track. Uh, we're here with our two guests today. We have Joanna Harper, and in a minute, we'll be joined by Kate Grace. Um, Joanna, we are thrilled to have on. I remember Roisin brought her book, Sporting Gender, to our attention last year. Everyone, if you want to read up more about um track and field and DSD athletes and trans athletes and the IAAF rulings that have ensued over the last year. This is the book with the information that will um, really, really be interesting. And there's a lot of history in there too, that I found really interesting and just didn't know about. So we are thrilled to have an expert like Joanna on here. Um, Joanna is getting her PhD in um the area of uh, gender and sport, it sounds like, at Loughborough. And we'll let her introduce herself further. But thank you so much for joining us today, Joanna, and welcome to Keeping Track. Um, yes. So um, I've always been uh, a scientist, an athlete, and transgender. But it was only after my transition that all three of those came together for me and, and changed the course of my life. When I was young, I earned two degrees in physics at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. While I was there, I, I also ran a 223 marathon um, in, when I was competing in the men's division, of course. I've continued competing uh, as I got older and slower. Um, but once I started my hormone therapy in 2004, I, I got noticeably slower very quickly. In fact, within nine months of starting hormone therapy, I was running 12% slower. And that's the difference between serious male distance runners and serious female distance runners. And so as a scientist, I was amazed by this, that, that hormones could make so much difference in, in such a short period of time. So I started to learn about the endocrinology and the exercise physiology involved. Um, eventually, I also started to gather some data, and it took a while, but by 2015, I published the first paper doing quantitative analysis of the performance of transgender athletes. Um, <clears throat> once that paper came out, my, my life changed very noticeably. Um, World Athletics, which was then the IAAF and, and the IOC, took notice. I started to get invited to um, international meetings where policy was being determined. Um, I did a, a number of other things, including uh, writing a book about uh, the science and history of transgender and intersex athletes. And then in, in 2019, I had the opportunity to move to England to uh, gain a PhD by formally studying what I had uh, informally studied for, for the recent years. So I, I'm now uh, living in England, and, and that's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> Great. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you. And uh, we also have Kate Grace joining us today. Um, Kate is an 800-meter runner, and it seems like much of the conversation around 
DSD, which is Differences of Sexual Development. You'll read an explanation of that in the book. Um, And trans athletes, a lot of that is swirling around the 800-meter event. So we love having Alicia and Kate's perspective here today in our little discussion. Um, Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. And Kate and Joanna sort of know each other from their Portland days, it sounds like. You two have spoken about this before. Yeah, when I was doing... um... Uh, I started writing and researching the book in late 2013. And uh, so in early 2014, I uh, decided that I I needed to talk to uh, an elite 800 meter runner. And since Kate and I were both living in Oregon at the time, uh, I reached out to her and she was gracious enough to sit down and talk to me, even though no one had heard of me back then. Uh, And uh, Kate and I have occasionally had discussions on the topic over the intervening years. Awesome. Great. Um, I have a question off the bat, Joanna. Um, it seems like the four 800, 1500-meter distances are the, the kind of, it seems to be the distance that everyone's discussing and say, okay, should we have restrictions and stuff like that? And I'm wondering, um, you know, why is it those events specifically? And why, you know, for viewers who are listening, you know, what are the main issues and could you explain them maybe for our listeners? Because there is so, so much complication in there. I don't want to get things wrong. Um, but for the average person listening who, you know, reads about Castor Semenyan maybe not being able to compete or being able to compete, and why is there such a focus on those events only? So over the last 25 to 30 years, those are the events from the 400 to the 1500 meter where uh, women with XYDSDs have been extremely dominant. So these rules certainly didn't come up uh, just over Castor Semenya. Mm-hmm. Um, there are over 30 medals in those disciplines that have been won by uh, XYDSD athletes uh, since the early 90s, and, and that's in world championships or, or Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's a, a huge number. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's it's not just Castor Semenya. Now, in terms of the science of why those events, that's a, a very, very interesting question. And no one knows for sure. But the two um, major performance differences with testosterone are strength and then endurance. The uh, testosterone increases the red blood cell supply, which is, is very important for endurance runners. And so World Athletics has theorized that those are the events where both strength and endurance are really important. Um, and, and, and that's just the theory. And I'm, I'm not entirely certain it, it holds water, but, but that's, that's their theory and they're sticking to it. Um, but certainly the preponderance of intersex athletes or DSD athletes have been in those events over the last 25 to 30 years. And, and that is, is certainly undeniable. And Joanna, um, one of the questions that I think your book centers around is like, what is gender? Um, and so there's a lot of different components to that. And you brought up a term, athletic gender, which I found really interesting as it ties into the track and field divisions and the in the sports world. Can you talk about athletic gender and what that idea is? Sure. Sex is generally considered to be the biology of the male-female dichotomy and gender, the sociology of the the male-female dichotomy. 
but but there's overlap between the two. Sex and gender are not entirely separate from one another. And, and both sex and gender have a number of components. So if you're talking about what it is that makes somebody male or somebody female, there, there's this, this complex interaction of, of sex and gender and all these sub-characteristics of sex and of gender. And, and so my idea, and, and I, I don't mean to say that no one else has ever had this idea, is that because both sex and gender are so complex, that we can't rely on any one measure of sex or gender to differentiate men from women for all purposes. And, and hence, when it comes to sports, we should use some metric that's important to differentiate male athletes from female athletes and is, is mostly dimorphic. Uh, and, and that has says nothing about somebody's uh, gender identity, how they identify, how they were classified at birth or, or any other single characteristic, but it just should decide how we separate athletes into the male and female categories. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about your book is it's very, um, it's rooted in science as well as the history. And I feel like one of the main topics of discussion is that gender and sport is a human rights issue, but it butts up against this biological science issue. And like, that's kind of, I feel like what's in the headlines today is the human rights issue of trans women and women with DSD should be able to compete as they are versus, you know, the reality of like what testosterone does to your body and what that does to the divisions of sport. So, um, I guess that's diving into the nitty gritty part of the conversation. I don't know if you have comment on that or or sort of what have the arguments been um, that you've heard around that? Certainly, many people tend to go one of two directions. Either they say that trans women are women, uh, that um, intersex women or, or women with DSDs uh, are assigned female at birth, born female, and, and, and either of these things, either because of gender identity or birth assignment, that they should be entitled to compete in, in the women's division. And, and um, it, it's easy to say something like trans women are women. It's just four words. And uh, it, it's a simple, um, you know, it, it's a very simple catchphrase. On the other end of the spectrum are people who say um, that it's not fair, that trans women, that women with XYDSDs have advantages. So, so it's very easy to say, you know, they have unfair advantages, it's not fair. And so, you know, then there are people who are somewhere in the middle of, of those and, and they seem to be a fairly small number, but they include people who run most of the uh, international sporting federations, they include myself uh, and some other people who try to find some middle ground between these two very polar positions. Mm -hmm. What do our 800 women think, Kate and Alicia, around around that? Um, this is, uh, of course, you know, a topic where I feel like I just want to listen, you know, for me. And um, and I've been listening for, or, you know, just trying to take in as much as possible, understand. Um, and it's been really interesting because I feel like in the last couple of months, I've been forced to talk about it more publicly and how I'm thinking through you know, my role as an advocate 
for DSD transgender athletes. And then, and then also my role in understanding and believing in science. So it's like, you know, the two of those uh, in this, and I'm, I'm so thankful to be on this call because the two of those, of course, you know, have been swirling in my head. So I think that I somehow fit in the category that, um, uh, Joanna is talking about in that small percentage of people just trying to, you know, find, you know, how I'm going to say, you know, yes, you know, trans women need to be able to have an opportunity to compete in sports where they feel they belong, you know, and then DSD athletes need a, a place in sport where they feel they belong. And I, my brain just explodes to be completely honest. Um, so I don't know if I'm, I'm, you know, helping in any, any right. I think more than anything, I actually kind of want to just, uh, have a conversation with Joanna, like, you know, for hours about all of the things that people ask me, like I'm some expert, I'm not. Um, but here's the thing that I will say, um, I have so much leaned on the side of supporting DSD and transgender athletes. One, people think it's the same thing. It's not, um, especially in the mass public, you know, people just hearing a, a headline and, you know, the bite clickbait sort of, you know, things. And it's so damaging towards the individual. And that's, I guess, where I keep, that's what has me lean towards the athlete um, that is being affected because like, you know, we'd mentioned earlier, this is, is a human rights issue in large. Um, and sport has been a construct, but ultimately, you know, as we're finding out and people are being made more aware of, there's this um, group of people that are not being represented well and having the opportunity to get uh, the benefits that we get out of sport from a self-esteem. It's actually doing the exact opposite for these athletes. So I don't know, I guess, Joanna, what I, what I would want to ask you is like, you know, how does someone that fits in that small percentage you talked about that wants to be an ally, uh, you know, for these athletes, but also is, trying to listen and understand the other side from the science component. I don't know, where do we, how do we um, best be allies and how do we best advocate for the person as well as the sport? It's a, a difficult thing, of, of course. And, um, you know, uh, as a, a trans person myself, uh, I have faced a fair bit of backlash because I'm not in favor of, trans women having unlimited rights in sports at, at elite levels. Uh, and and I, I certainly think that there has to be some balance. Now, when you say that some balance, there's still a, a lot of room. And, and, you know, I've been in meeting rooms at the IOC where there's 20, 25 experts uh, sitting around a table. And even we can't, <laughs> make decisions you know it, it, it's it's a very very challenging thing to find some balance between uh you know the human rights of repressed minorities and of uh you know the uh dsd and transgender athletes and of, of athletes like like you and and kate and and people might not know uh but but alicia ran in the 2012 800-meter Olympic final and Kate in the 2016 uh, Olympic final. And, and both of those races had significant DSD athlete components to them. And, and so, 
you know, I feel for both you and Kate having to be in that situation at the highest level of sports and, and dealing with those sorts of issues. Uh, and I also feel for the repressed minorities. And, and so it, it, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Kate, what's your perspective having raced in, um, you know, events where the podium is, um, you see someone like Castor Semenya or Margaret Wambui or Francine Saba dominating the podium at the Diamond League or the World Championships. And and what is your thought on that uh, with all these components coming together? Um, honestly, that's why I, re- I think probably reached back out to Joanna because just because um, just what you all were saying, what Lisa was saying, just that it was like, I don't know how to talk about this. Like I feel for everybody and I don't understand kind of what, where the science meets kind of, yeah, like the just general like empathy and human rights. Um, I mean, I would always say at the time, like let's deal with the dopers first. I mean, I know, especially in that 2012 race, like people have been popped for doping. And so that I would say is like, I think in the beginning, we're like, okay, let's focus our attention on them and get them out of the race. Um, and then we can deal with all the intricacies of who else is racing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I do think that Joanna's book has been so enlightening just because you realize that, um, while they're not always popular in like amongst my non-running friends, like, so my non-running friends, whenever they hear any kind of hormone regulations, they're just like, it's, uh, like completely don't want to go there. It's very much like, this is way too invasive. This is horrible that people are even thinking about this. Um, so I have appreciated learning from Joanna, just that in some instances, for example, also with trans athletes that actually hormone regulations could be avenue into sport. Right. So like if we had some kind of just like, if it, instead of being female and male categories, it was female and male sporting gender, then it would be much easier for trans athletes to, um, to, to race and, and, and to not have as many barriers, right? As long as they were, uh, would fall, as long as they fell within the hormone categories um, or the hormone levels. Um, so that to me makes sense. I think the biggest thing that I always get confused with when I'm trying to have conversations is this idea where people will say, quote unquote, the bad science or this kind of what the back to the initial question of like why it's only a few events that have these regulations. And that's for, Whenever I'm trying to have a discussion, because like I never quite know what how to respond to that, because in my mind, like men are better than women in all the events, right? And so if we're saying that testosterone is the main thing, um, I, I I'd be curious what like if Joanna could put this into plain terms, like why maybe she already did this, but like why it's these events, even though like all the other events we're also running in, like in the 5K and the 10K, men are also beating women by 10 to 15 percent. But that also might have been a question that we already just went over. <laughs> well, can we actually, can we talk about testosterone? Like, can we talk about the hormones? Because I liked that the book gave us numbers on sort of the averages, the differences, the magnitude of difference that testosterone, um, of testosterone in men versus women versus DSD athletes versus trans athletes. So Joanna, can you take us through a little bit about um what role testosterone has in the sport? Is that the main differentiator and why? And also, is it healthy, the hormone replacement components? Um, I know that's a concern people have. Um, well, those are a lot of questions. But, yes. <laughs> but, but to start with, certainly any athletic woman who's had a younger brother uh, has has seen 
what testosterone can do. She, you know, this athletic woman is a better athlete than her younger brother uh, up until her brother hits puberty. And then suddenly, (laughs) wow, (laughs) you know, and, and where did that come from? Well, it comes largely from the testosterone that that men have as as they hit puberty. Their testosterone levels explode at at that time. And the numbers that I'll use will use uh, scientific units that aren't mostly used in the United States. But um, the men's range of testosterone is from roughly 8 to 30 nanomoles per liter. uh, And the women's range is between zero and two nanomoles per liter. And and that may not sound like that big a difference, but the women's testosterone range is very narrow, it's very peak. And um, eight is four times as large as two. And in terms of uh, a, a normal distribution, a scientific distribution, the lower end of the men's range is four standard deviations above the higher end of the women's range. Now, when scientists use the word range, we talk about the 95% confidence level. So that means there are some people who are outside of the range. And uh, so there's two and a half percent of women who are above the female range and two and a half percent who are essentially below, although it, it's so small at that point that that doesn't matter. But the two and a half percent above the women's range is where things get really interesting. There's a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, which can raise testosterone levels and usually gets testosterone up to about three or four, maybe at a maximum. And yet even that very modest increase means that PCOS women are overrepresented in sports. The XYDSD conditions that can occur are the only way that non-doping women can get into the men's range of testosterone. And uh, women with XYDSD conditions can get all the way up to the top end of the male range of testosterone and hence have that full male advantage of of testosterone. Now, the XYDSDs are are very complicated and and one is uh, called androgen insensitivity where XYDSD people have very high levels of testosterone, but their bodies can't use it because there's a receptor that doesn't work the way it does in everyone else. So it's not just testosterone alone, but how the body can take it up and use it. But um, there is, is no doubt that if you're looking at a single factor that differentiates male athletes from female athletes, it's testosterone. It's not the only factor. There are any number of factors. But if you're looking with uh, 2021 level of science at one factor to pick to differentiate male athletes from female athletes, it pretty much has to be testosterone. Mm-hmm. The, the functional testosterone, I guess. Yes. So, Joanna, with your um, idea for athletic gender, do you think this is like a solution to this kind of complexity of, of you know, navigating like, you know, just based on test is it based on testosterone levels? Like, could you tell us more about this um, this idea well, of athletic gender? Uh, again, uh, so the idea behind athletic gender, as as I, I mentioned briefly before, is is that because sex and gender are, are so complex, 
that we can't pick any one method to reliably separate men from women in all ways. With somewhere between 98 and 99% of humanity, uh, people are sexually dimorphic, which means that they're either all male or all female. Um, but one and a half percent of humanity uh, is, roughly speaking, is not sexually dimorphic. And that's one and a half percent of humanity is 100 million people. So, so that's, that's a big chunk of, of people. And, and so when you look at these people, and, and I'm one of these people, it doesn't mean these people are freaks. It, it's just they're atypical. Uh, and so they can have any number of quantities that range from, from somewhere uh, to you know, uh, male and female in terms of sex and gender and, and uh, various biological characteristics. And so if you try to pick any one characteristic to separate men from women in all senses, it's not going to work. And so the idea is depending on, on what you want to separate for, if you're separating which bathroom to use, let's use gender identity. Let's people go to the bathroom where they identify. Uh, but when it comes to high level sports, we should pick a method that is important to differentiate male athletes from female athletes and is mostly sexually dimorphic. So um, that, that's the idea. And, and it doesn't have anything to do per se with testosterone. If we can come up with a better way of doing it than testosterone, I'm all in favor of it. But as of right now, we just don't have a better method. Joanna, one of the things that was really interesting to me about your book was the history of um, trans and DSD athletes that I wasn't aware how many of those athletes there had been. And so I think that shows us this isn't new, but I think that also shows us, um, you know, perhaps the idea that this is a threat to women's sport is a little over-exaggerated because this has been going on for a long time. And, you know, although the 800 has, is, is seeing a lot of successful athletes that are in the DSD and, and trans um, categories. It's not something that snowballed the way people have sort of maybe predicted or feared about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, and, you know, is the idea that this is a threat real? Because I, I do agree when Kate said, you know, let's take care of the doping first. That's the true large threat numbers wise to our sport. Um, but that's my, that's kind of been my perception, you know, more about this. So, so what is your thought on that? Like, is this really a threat? I feel like that's a fear-based idea. <laughs> so first, let me talk a little bit about the history because as it, it was one of my favorite things about writing the book was researching the history and, and especially the decade of the 1930s. Um, it, it was uh, an amazing decade in, in terms of, of DSD athletes. Uh, a number of prominent athletes from the 1930s, including uh, Babe Didrikson Zaharias, who recently uh, posthumously was awarded the Presidential Medal of Honor, uh, and is considered by many the greatest American female athlete of the 20th century, um, probably had uh, DSDs. Um, and there are a number of reasons that I'll lead for the book of, of why this decade was so rife with DSD athletes. But um, it, it was uh, an amazing thing to see. And in the 1936 Olympics, um, 
the 100 meters this time, they didn't actually have any races longer for women than the 100 in, in the Olympics at that time. But the 100 meter race was probably uh, dominated by DSD women. Uh, the three women who won the medals were probably all DSD athletes. Uh, and then in every Olympic Games between 1936 and 2016, there were some restrictions that were put on DSD athletes. And then in 2016, those restrictions weren't there. And we saw another podium sweep. So this idea of a threat uh, to, to, to women's sport, in, in terms of the vast number of women in sports today, uh, there are far too few intersex and trans athletes to translate into a true threat. Uh, intersex or trans women are just not going to be swamping typical female athletes and, and forcing them out of sport. That's, there's no way that that will happen. However, when you look at the very pinnacle of sports, it doesn't take very many numbers to have a, a, a huge impact on, on what happens. If, if we talk about the podium level at world championships or at, at uh, the Olympics, or who gets a lane in a diamond league meet, then there is the potential for a huge disruption at that very exalted level. Um, and, and so, you know, this idea of a threat for the most part, no, it's nonsense. But if you look at the very pinnacles of sport, then there is actually something to be said for that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I'm just going to ask a couple of questions about uh, the um, world record holder in the 800, Hadamia Kratz-Tavila, um, her story in terms of her racing, running 153 really low, and then you know that same weekend also running a 47, 400. Um, and part of me is like, I, I want for people to believe in like the, the wowness of a, a human, human abilities, you know? Um, and then also the realities of what could have potentially been. And again, it's, I, I don't want to start like, you know, pinning, oh this person or this person or that person in your, um, understanding and research. I have more than one question, I guess. One of them is, would she have fallen in a category? And how do we know, you know, when we look at the history of how you were talking about research without actually having done studies on those people? And then how do you respond to people who's, who are uh, bringing to the, the argument, the policing of women's bodies and also policing of black bodies and, you know, categorizing them in special um, arenas? So um... that was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we don't actually know if Patrick Vilova has a, a DSD. It's unlikely, but she was part of the uh, the Soviet bloc of countries who took young girls, prepubescent girls, uh, who were promising athletes, and fed them massive amounts of steroids prior to puberty. And, 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 you know, that's an unconscionable thing to do, but it happened. And, and it's why the East Germans in the 70s and 80s, with a, a very small population, became uh, the dominant force in, in women's sports because, you know, they were taking their best women athletes, 
and, and doping them before they even started puberty. And Kratik Vilova, um, she was from the Czech Republic and not East Germany, but she probably fell into that group where she was massively doped from a very young age. Uh, so, you know, there are performances from the 80s in women's world records, such as hers, that may never be broken. Uh, and, and it's because of uh, this rampant use of, of steroids primarily. Now, the, you know, the, the idea of policing women's bodies, it, it's, it's a, a very difficult thing because certainly anyone who's an athlete and a female athlete knows that if you want to be good at your sport, you know, you do have to build muscle. You do have to uh, become, you know, athletic looking. And, and it does present a different appearance than the models on the cover of Vogue or, or, or whatever, uh, you know, these starved women sort of, sort of look. And, and so, you know, this athletic female look, well, there are many who appreciate that look, but there are, are some who say, well, you know, can women become too athletic looking? And, and, and there are definitely people who make that judgment. Oh, she looks like a man because she has too much muscles. Uh, and so it, it's a very, very difficult call. But, but it's certainly true that, uh, you know, massively doped athletes and, and Craddock Vilova is a classic case. When you look at pictures of her from the 80s, uh, I mean, it was stunning how muscular she was. And so, you know, where do you draw this line from the necessary uh, muscularity and athleticism that female athletes have to have and, and being quote unquote, too masculine? It, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's a, a very, very fraught argument. Alicia, that's a great point that you brought up because I wonder if sort of the onslaught of attention that Castor received was partly because of what she looked like compared to maybe what another athlete with her condition might have looked like. Um, you, I feel like the, we heard a lot of comments like that. At least I did from casual armchair sports fans or, you know, friends that didn't know quite enough about track. I agree. That's one of the reasons why I feel like I have, you know, even though it seems like an imperfect answer, the idea of some kind of, um, some kind of like, like, testosterone test or some kind of test in which you're not basing it on how someone looks because hundred percent, like there is such a history that you were saying about like uh, even Serena, like black female athletes being told that they were quote unquote too masculine. And then reading in Jonah's book about how a lot of the sex testing early on was just like, if you looked like you were masculine and it's like, who's to determine that? Yeah. And what biases are going into that? Um, but I guess my initial question was also just, if we are going to do some kind of standard, it is weird at this point where our standard is not all across the sport. It's only in like five events. And so I don't know, Joanna, like if, if you have any insight, like, is there a thought that you would make some kind of standard across the events? Cause right now it does seem a little bit like we're just going after. Few which people. I know you, yeah. Yeah. You, you may have, have missed this Kate, but over the past 30 years, um, XYDSD athletes have won more than 30 world championship and Olympic medals uh, in events from the 400 through the 1500 meters. Uh, and, and that's a huge number. Um, Castor, I believe, has five or six of those medals. So it, it, it's far from, from just Castor. And so it's this huge overrepresentation 
that has led world athletics to pick these events. But it's also, again, uh, from the book, it's uh, historically in 2011, they chose all of the events, but then they were taken to court in 2015 by the uh, Indian athlete, Duty Chan. And the choice of the 400 through the 1500 was influenced largely by what happened in this Duty Chan case. And so, you know, if people say, oh, it's because of Castor Semenya, it's actually more because of Duty Chan than of, of Castor Semenya. And I'll, again, I will leave the details of that for hopefully somebody to read in the book. But those are sort of the reasons that the policy evolved for DSD athletes of just 400 through 1500 meters. By the same token, for trans athletes, it's all events. And, and so there is some inconsistency there. And, and yes, it's absolutely true that testosterone affects all events. I guess that, no, I, yes, I definitely, I um, did know that, um, that, that like the metal count had been concentrated, which is why it's there. I guess just when I'm trying to do my layperson kind of discussions or, um, yeah, the easy way to get people to understand is saying, okay, but men and women are different. We're different across all events. But then I get a hiccup because I'm like, wait, we're different across all events. And yet these regulations are only on these few events. Um, and it just kind of why, yeah, why is testosterone, even if it technically, if you're saying that this should be the one that's going to be the limiting factor on all events, why it's only on these events? I guess in some sense, the short answer is that legally, World Athletics didn't think they could win a case in the court of arbitration of sport if they had it on all events, but they thought they could win if it was very narrow. And that's exactly what happened. They did win. Who knows what would have happened? Well, what would have happened is they would have lost because of the Chan decision. And, and, and Duty Chan is a 100 meter runner. And, and so by Moving it away from the events that Duty Chan ran, they got a new day in court and, and a new chance to argue this case in a different way. And, and so there are definitely legal aspects to that decision, which, you know, I, I'm not necessarily thrilled about, but uh, that's the way that, that it evolved. Yeah, because it seems like really reactionary. Oh, they're going, oh. We're going to defend these events, but then like everything else is fine. And then, you know, it's kind of but like you're saying, like it's a legal battles that they're kind of navigating and, and deciding, OK, better to win that than to not win anything. And that's just the reality of life, right? A little bit more complex than we'd like it to be. Yeah. In real life, we have to make a lot of compromises. Mm-hmm. And to just go backwards just a little bit, you know, um, not to make this about Castor, more about DSD athletes, but, you know, her case is an example of, you know, our listeners for what they can look at. But um, I think one of the the things I just wanted to go back on, because like on the tail end of what I was saying before in my, you know, circular thought process, um, is, again, it was very visual. The attack on Castor was just, as, it was very visual. Like, I haven't had anybody grab me and take me to a back room and then do a gender examination on me, you know? Um, and <laughs> I've not uh, commanded race leads the, the way that she has. But, you know, a lot of that in the Black community has been this thing of a rise up to say, you know, 
there's a attack against black bodies, um, especially of African, you know, dominant African descent. Obviously all of us are, but you know what I mean? Um, more of like closer to the hundred percent range within, um, West Africa, East Africa, you know, all of the different ranges of where people would see, you know, you are, you know, what she's South African, you are, you know, whatever, everybody fits in different categories. But, um, yeah, I just want to go back on that and think about, you know, the visual aspect of, of grabbing this person, pulling her out specifically at, because of how she looks and where do we go with that? How do you, it, it, would that be, is that a marker for a lot of people just from a visual aspect? You know, how do you know in testing athletes, is everyone now going to be subject to this testing? I'm just trying to think of like, what's the, how do I go back to my community and say, you know, I don't know, like this, yeah, it does feel like an attack on, uh, on black bodies and how they present and can the variation of how they can, they can present, not saying, you know, um, many different races can look uh, different ways, but I don't know. It just, it's, I, I really dislike even being on this side of this, the, the argument of, of defending, not having her removed from the sport because of how her story went down. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, a very valid point, Alicia, you know, Castor Semenya endured many horrific indignities. I mean, she is treated horribly by people, by the press. I mean, mean, just unspeakable things were said about her and and written about her. And and it's just horrific the way she was treated. And and it's such a shame. I can certainly tell you that world athletics has learned. uh, And one of the things that they are, uh, implementing and, and you know the the pandemic has kind of uh, made some changes to, to how it operates but certainly world athletics it is their intention to run a testosterone test on every athlete as soon as they reach world levels world elite levels and, and so that would hopefully be done before any of this happens although in Castor's case she went from you know a junior, to being the best in the world, you know, in a matter of months. So it would still be very difficult in her case, but, but her case was just unspeakably horrible. And, and, and yes, and, and in terms of getting into um, the race thing, any Caucasian person risks uh, uh, a lot by speaking on it. But let me just say that in Doha in, in 2019 with the first world championships, where these new rules were in place. And there were these four events, the 400, 400 hurdles, 800 and 1500, where the uh, rules were in place. All 12 of the medalists in those events were women of color. Um, In the 800 final in Doha, all eight finalists were women of color. So the rules did not produce an attack on on, on women of color. it was just different women of color that that won the medals that uh, you know that that made the 800 meter final that year. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a great point, um, Alicia, in regards to the human rights side of the issue. It did seem like Castor was treated so harshly and with so little dignity. You know that issue 
I feel like um, it just, it needed to be dealt with, but the way it was dealt with was really, really bad. I think all the athletes felt for her in that way. Well, most of them. I mean, I've seen well, yeah. in our events some pretty uh, blatant rudeness. Uh, no, you're right. I don't know what the word is. It's just like, yeah. Misplaced um, anger, I think. Yeah. Anyhow. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for, for that. And I, um, I don't know. I feel like we, I can I'll probably keep going in circles on how I'm thinking through all of this and all of the, you know, third party conversations that I'm trying to remember and bring back through. And cause like Kate was expressing before, you know, you run up against uh, a wall a lot of times and instead you're maybe not doing, uh, at least for me, I'm, I'm saying you're not talking like for you guys, but instead I feel like I'm not doing my part in just trying to have a productive conversation about it by running away from it in a lot of ways. Um, because yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't want to one, I feel like I'm, I, I'm just meant to just mention this Molly. I really don't want to hurt anybody whose, um, stories experience I'm not a part of in that way. Um, and I think the argument for people who, when I say something like that, you're in the sport. You should know, like, you know, this is affecting athletes. This is affected you. And, and like Kate has said, I 100% don't even like think of, uh, the DSD athletes to be completely honest, because there are so many doped up athletes that we're not focusing on. And, you know, that is something that is cut and dry and very clear to me that that needs to be removed. And I think that, the focus on these, on the DSD athletes is actually kind of watering down, um, you know, eradicating doping from the sport and having as harsh as a punishment. I mean, if we treated, which I don't think you should treat anybody like, you know, that I'm, I'm very angry with dopers, but I don't, you know, I wouldn't throw a brick at them. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but what I'm saying is it feels like the, it's, it's, it's an attack on, you know, DSD and intersex and trans, uh, athletes. And it's kind of like a, you know, a slap on the wrist for dopers and they get to come back into the sport. I don't know. That's, That's a whole a really topic. good point. That is a really good point. There's like a, you need a dehumanization of victimization of caster. And then the dopers are just kind of like, Oh, here's a little slap on the wrist and see mm-hmm. you back here in like two years and mm-hmm. or yep. four years. And or systematic thing that's been happening that we know it's been happening. It's always, mm-hmm. it's been there. It's been ignored. It's been paid off. And yes, caster is exposed in the most like horrific way. Yeah. 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 So what can we do? What can, uh, the sport do, um, to include, um, many people within sporting categories and is the answer, um, having to take hormones the you know the idea that um, that hormone therapy is is being forced on uh, on on anyone is 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 certainly not true. Now, this is true for for trans athletes and for um, you know for DSD athletes as well. Uh, back when I lived in Portland, there's. Uh, a professional cyclist whose name is, is Molly Cameron. She competes in cyclocross. She's transgender. Um, she chooses not to take hormones. She competes in the men's category. It's, you know, as, as she said, it, it's not her first choice to race against the men, but 
she has chosen not to go on hormone therapy and she races the men. Uh, and it's, you know, been accepted in her sport that, that Molly's a chick racing the dudes. Uh, and it's you know, something that, that has happened. Uh, but, but it's also true that for trans athletes, taking hormones is part of our therapy is what we do to get healthier mentally, uh, you know, suicide rates go down. Our depression can can be lifted. There are many things that that hormone therapy is good for trans athletes, and that's not necessarily true for DSD athletes. Some DSD athletes, it will be true that you know they they will like the fact that their body becomes more feminine, but some won't. And so this idea that you then put in a rule that to compete, you know at the Diamond League, at World Championships, in these events that these DSD athletes have to take hormone therapy. It's an imposition, there's, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's a very difficult thing. And you know, do I wish there was a better solution? Sure, of course. I, I'm just not sure I, I, I see one at the moment. Mm-hmm. What about the argument people have about adding another category? Was that just making a spotlight on on these athletes that maybe don't want to be spotlighted or spotlit <laughs> grammar. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I don't know, I don't know. I want to know, is that something to be considered? Is that, uh, outrageous to say something like that? Um, you know, in track and field, would it be allowing some lanes and men's categories for, um, just like all of these again, third-party conversations of being like, I don't know if that's something that you uh, can suggest or should suggest. And Certainly, the, the number of trans and intersex athletes precludes the idea of a third category in team sports. You know, if you're talking about uh, trying to put a national soccer team together and, you know, you're trying to get a, a transgender or a third category soccer team you know, you're going to have to dig pretty deep to find 11 uh, trans or slash intersex or whatever athletes to oh. fill that team. And then what countries are, will you compete against? So so team sports is just not the numbers. But but in individual sports, it, it, it's a possibility. You could have um, an intersex 800-meter race at the Tokyo Olympics. But would that winner, would that winner get the same accolades as the, you know, the men's and women's winners of the 800 mm-hmm. get all these endorsements, or would they be labeled a freak, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, there are a number of difficulties about trying to create a third category. Mm-hmm. Joanna, a good question for you around um, how to, you know, how could we advocate for, you know, we want, we all benefit from sport, right? We've all participated in sport and reap the benefits and continue to even, you know, professionally or post-professionally or just in the, generally in our lives. How do we advocate for trans athletes and DSD athletes who want to compete, but then, you know, there's this different rulings going to come up. Like Molly, you've told me a couple of times you've had parents on different sides of issues emailing you saying, hey, can you advocate for us about this? Or can you, and then the opposite mm-hmm. on the other side. And, you know, how, how tricky it is um, for people, again, who don't want to do any harm, but want to, um, you know, promote sport and inclusion and try to 
you know, take on both sides? What should we do? It's a very, very difficult question. And, and certainly one of the things that, that you should think about before wading in is, is how thick your skin is. Um, you know, I personally have been called the destroyer of women's sports. I've been called a traitor to my fellow transgender people. You know, people have said some very nasty things about me. If I didn't have a thick skin, I, I, I wouldn't handle it well. Mm. Um, and so I, I certainly, you know, there are, are many athletes who choose just to remain silent because of that. And I, and I don't, you know, and I certainly understand that. Mm. Um, I, I would say, you know, follow your conscience. Uh, it, it's an extraordinarily difficult uh, issue. And, and I certainly think there are good people on all sides of this issue. And I would hope that you try not to make it personal and try to discuss uh, where mm -hmm. we're coming from on, on these issues and try to reach some sort of agreements. But but it's extraordinarily challenging. Mm -hmm. Thank you for modeling that for us, though, right? That you you realize that to have a voice, you always open yourself up. Anyone who has a voice opens themselves up to criticism, and that you know, comes with the territory and appreciate your sentiment there, Matt. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for your insight. Um, yeah, it's been a, a long conversation, obviously, um, that's been happening internally for a lot of us and then just behind the scenes. So it's really nice to just have your perspective and your input. Yes, thank you so much, Joanna. Um, as of the writing of the book, I thought it was mentioned that there was um, no real published work that compares pre and post transition um, athletic performances. Is that still right? As far as well, data? And can you tell us, are you working on that with your PhD? Like, what are you working on? <laughs> so my 2015 paper did in a very limited way. I looked at eight transgender distance runners and compared their race times before and after. So, so there is that paper. There's a paper that came out very recently looking at the performance of Air Force Academy officers and, and uh, enlisted people on their three standardized tests, um, uh, the one and a half mile run and sit-ups and push-ups. Now, these aren't, aren't athletes, but they're pretty fit individuals. Um, and those are the only published studies. And, and yes, that's precisely what I'm working on. The, the, the most exciting study that we're doing is to get uh, trans athletes into the lab. We do baseline tests on them, exercise tests before they start hormone therapy, and uh, then test them as they, they pass through their transition. Uh, it, it's very challenging to recruit because we have to recruit fairly high-level athletes just before they start hormone therapy. And that's been extraordinarily challenging. I've been here for just over a year. We have two. One is a cyclist. One is a golfer. Um, and, you know, we're still in the early stages. We have baseline tests on them. Uh, they are both on the cusp of starting hormone therapy. We'll see what happens over the next couple of years. Uh, hopefully the data, although limited numbers, will be useful. I'm also working up, uh, on a follow-up of my 2015 paper looking at more athletes in depth in a similar fashion to what I did pre and post uh, hormones. So yeah, that's what I'm doing now. Awesome. Um, and here at Keeping Track, 
we like to close out our interviews by just asking, um, is there anything else about your personal story, your personal journey in the sport that you want people to know that you feel like isn't talked about enough or just something that you want to put out there? <laughs> I think I'm talked about plenty enough. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks again, Joanna. Thanks so much, Kate and Alicia. Kate, we have to have you back on, Kate, yes. to have a proper Kate. conversation. <laughs> Kate, you're going to have your own episode. Don't worry. <laughs> you come back awesome. to us. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks definitely. For on. Thank you, guys. Thank you again for keeping track. Yeah, thanks, ladies. We know this is a weighty discussion, but um, I think we had the most expert of experts we could have. So go read Joanna's book. And um, yeah, thanks for keeping track with keep us. Keep track. Keep track. Major shout outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.